And uh, as we continue in this sermon series, we find ourselves today in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Let's hear then God's holy word. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in him for administering the fullness of times to sum up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we also are given a share, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, in order that we might be, for the praise of his glory, those who have already hoped in Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray to you. And now, O oh God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, there's some advice I give to some of my seminary students. So these are budding preachers. Uh, when I'm evaluating their sermons as I, I'm watching them, uh, looking at Derek. I've not actually given you this advice, Derek, but uh, I've had to give it to some students, and that's don't preach during the prayer. <laughs> Sometimes, maybe you've heard this before, when a sermon has gone on perhaps a long time, and the preacher realizes it's time to end, and so they, it's time let's pray then together. But the sermon kind of continues on through the prayer, and it's like, in fact, we're starting to get points and subpoints in the prayer, and it's kind of like, the sermon concluded, let's go ahead and just uh, pray at that point. Well, as I was preparing this week, I was thinking maybe I actually shouldn't be so critical about this kind of thing because that's kind of what Paul is doing uh, in this passage, which is Paul prays. He uh, greets the Ephesians. He says, hello, greetings in the Lord. And then immediately he breaks into a prayer. He says, blessed be God the Father. So he starts praying. It's not directed to the Ephesians. He's not talking to them. He's talking to God. But it's kind of like he's preaching. He's teaching the Ephesians for his prayer. We get to listen in, in a sense. And what we're listening into as Paul is praying, uh, is listening into how God has blessed us, what he has done for us. Really, it's just a, a list, one after another, of the great benefits that God has given to us that are available in Christ. And really, not just what these benefits are, but Paul kind of has points and subpoints. points. It kind of sounds a bit like a sermon, of why we have these benefits, how we got these benefits, what they're for, because of who God is and what he's done, these benefits then are about who we are as well. So Paul is teaching through this prayer, not really just teaching us how to pray, uh, though it's that too, you might say, uh, but teaching us to know what we have in Christ. What do you have? What treasures do you have today? And knowing this can cause us to give praise and thanks and, and to live according to these great gifts. I told Larry before he left uh, this week, 
I said, well, thanks for giving me this passage because it's just all gospel. I mean, this passage is really just one after another of great things that you have in Christ. He doesn't say anything about what you're supposed to do. It's just, here's what you have. Isn't that great? Here are the gifts you have. So let's open them up and see what's inside. Last week, uh, Pastor Larry showed us that this uh, prayer that Paul prays is a Trinitarian prayer. Just kind of great. I hadn't noticed that before when he pointed that out, that, uh, that, that Paul prays to and blesses God the Father. But then he goes on to talk about the gifts of the Son. And then he's going to end with the gift of the Spirit. So we have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this prayer. The first section covering the action of the Father. That was last week's sermon. And particularly the Father's choice, his predetermination ahead of time to show us his love to choose us in love, to adopt us as his children. And then it's this section that we're looking at today that Paul uh, looks at how the Father enacted that plan. Well, how did we become children? How did he show us love? Well, it was in the work of his Son, that we're sons in the Son, that we're children by his Son. So Paul in this passage is still addressing the Father, but he's, in a sense, talking about the Son. He's the subject of Paul's praise. And I think next week Larry's going to come back and talk about the gift of the Spirit. Well, how does the Spirit apply all of these great gifts to our lives, seal them, in fact, in us as individual persons? And as I was thinking about all of this for this week, I was thinking, what a great opportunity uh, to cover some basic Trinitarian theology. I do teach theology uh, for a living, so Larry said, go ahead. <laughs> and what we confess as Christians when we confess that God is a trinity, it's good to go over some of these things, and it can help us understand why Paul talks the way that he does. And you probably know the simplest summary of our Christian faith, uh, belief in God, that he is one being in three persons. It's kind of the simplest way you can teach it, you can explain it to others, one being, one God, but in three persons. It may not be a very satisfying explanation to kind of wrap your heads around but it's a good, simple description. See, God has a oneness of identity, of character and being, uh, but you might say a threeness of personhood, of selfhood, that God is within himself is also three. And that's really why Paul can praise the Father about the work of the Son. I think that's the explanation why Paul, I mean, that's our belief in the Trinity, but this is why it matters, Paul is going to praise the Father about the work of the Son. We might say, if we didn't believe in the Trinity, that'd be kind of unfair, wouldn't it? To praise somebody else for somebody else's action. So it actually explains to us, you wouldn't be able to do that, but the Son isn't a separate individual, a different being. He's one with the Father. And yet, on the other hand, it's also the case that the Son isn't so one, you might say, that he doesn't have a unique work that is his. That Paul really can say, the Father chose us. That redemption is in the Son. That the Spirit is the one who seals us. Who's the Son, after all, not the Father who became incarnate for us, that took on our flesh. See, although God is one, the Bible often connects different actions of God with the different members of the Trinity. We have to be careful with this. But it's something the Bible regularly does, and we often do this ourselves when we talk about, I believe in one God, the Father, Creator. So connecting creation with the Father, connecting salvation or redemption with 
the Son who took on our flesh. And then connecting the Spirit is the one who applies all this, who wraps it up, can, consummates salvation for us. It's, it's right for us to do this because this is how the Bible talks, how Paul talks right here. In the Son, he says, is redemption because it's the Son who took on our flesh and is still in our flesh even now. The Father and the Spirit redeem, of course, but it's the unique work of the Son in accomplishing this redemption. This is the plan that the Son might be the mediator between God and men. I hope this is a good reminder to us of some of our beliefs, but it's also a good segue into the opening words of our passage here. Uh, Paul has just spoken about Jesus as the beloved one. It's a beautiful picture that we are in the beloved, the one who is loved of the Father. The Father showed us love in his beloved. See, all that Trinity stuff really is relevant because that's how Paul talks. See, the Father has loved his Son for all eternity. That's who God is. He is love in himself. The Father has always loved the Son. The Son has always loved the Father. The Spirit is love in the Trinity. And that that is, in a sense, how we are wrapped up in this love. That's how blessed we are. We're caught up into this love that God has for himself, for his Son, for his Spirit, his Father. The Father is always delighting in his Son. And this is encouragement for us because now the Father has that same delight over us as his adopted children for who we are in his sight. And in all of this, Paul is then going to lay out two major benefits. He basically just says two main things, or kind of long phrases, but two major benefits of what we have in Christ, in the Beloved, in the Son. He says it in verses 7 through 10. He says, we have redemption. And then he's going to go on and unpack all of what that means. What does redemption mean? And then he goes on and has one more phrase. He says, and in Christ, we have a share. We have a share. And he's going to unpack those in verses 11 through 12. You can see on the outline. It's a pretty simple outline, actually, for today. Uh, Paul has lots of phrases kind of wrapped up in that, but that's the big point. We have redemption. We have a share. And again, nothing that we're told to do in this, just what we have in Christ. So let's see if we can unpack some of these words then. So first of all, in him... Verse 7, in him, that's in the beloved, he's still talking about a Christ the Son. He says, we have redemption. And all that's underneath that very simple phrase is just explaining that redemption. Paul tells us where redemption is to be found. He says, in Christ. He tells us how that redemption came about through his blood. He tells us what that redemption means or results in. The forgiveness of trespasses. Then he goes on to tell us the source or manner of that redemption. It's according to God's grace. And there's some explanation of what that grace is, what it was done for us. But let's first begin with this word redemption. It's a familiar word probably for many of us. There's actually a couple words for redemption in the Bible. Uh, some of them have similar meanings with some different emphases. One word for redemption has this kind of commercial sense to it. Uh, the idea of buying something or purchasing something. I think we still use this today. We're talking about redeeming a coupon, redeeming a gift card, redeeming a mortgage debt, perhaps, so buying it back, finding, coming to purchase it. And in Greek, that word can be used particularly for purchasing a slave's freedom. So people have often pointed out that's a great picture for us of redemption for us. Picture from buying back a slave 
from slavery. But actually the word for redemption here that Paul uses here, although it can, can mean a lot of those things, really has a slightly different emphasis. And its emphasis is a kind of military tone to it, really. Redemption is deliverance. It's getting back a release from oppression. So winning back a, a great victory. I don't think we really use redemption or redeem in quite the same way today, but you could uh, maybe say something like this, that that sports team redeemed themselves when they came back at the end of the playoff series and won the final game. Well, they redeemed themselves because they were down and they came back and won the victory. They snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. We can say something like the Allied army redeemed France as they were going through and released from the oppression, from Nazi control in World War II. That's the sense of redemption here. Two different emphases are really very much the same kind of thing. God is liberating people. He's releasing people from a debt, from oppression, purchasing them from slavery by fulfilling their debt. The first time that redeem is actually used in the Bible is in the Exodus. It's the kind of great redemption story of the Old Testament. All throughout the Old Testament, it's always, well, look back to what God did and bringing you from the house of Egypt, from slavery there. And how did God do that? Well, it's a great picture in a sense of both of these. Literally, Israel was slaves. And it's also the case that God won a great military victory, that he brought them out of Pharaoh's control, that he snatched them out in victory, gave them release. And in all of this, Paul says, we have redemption. We have a release into freedom. In fact, I don't know if I should make too much of this, but Paul uses an article there. It's almost like he's saying, we have the redemption, the big one, the one that everything's been waiting for. It's the big redemption, the big release and, uh, and, and purchase that God has done us. And it's in the sun. That's the location of redemption that we have. It might seem a bit odd for us, though, to talk about location of redemption, though, isn't it? Uh, it might say, isn't redemption spiritual? Isn't it something that doesn't happen in a single geographic place? And in one sense, yes, of course, you don't have to be in a certain location, thankfully, uh, physical location to experience it. It is a spiritual redemption. But the scriptures over and over use this phrase that redemption is in Christ. It's, it's in him. That if we're to be saved, we must be found in Christ, united to him, in him. When Paul says that redemption is in Christ, I think it means more than just that Christ is the one who did it. It's by means of him. Well, that's true, of course. We can say that. Uh, Christ is the one who accomplished redemption. He did it. But it's also the case that it's truly in him, that he's the source of salvation. It belongs to him. Think of that great phrase in Scripture used over and over again. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Their property that he has, it belongs to him. It adheres in him. Righteousness is in him, and salvation belongs to the Lord. So, on the one hand, we can think of it as a kind of metaphor. Being in Christ doesn't actually mean being inside of him. Salvation isn't a substance, you might say, that you gotta, gotta get, gotta kind of find in Christ. But what it says is that we are in him. It means that we're identified with Christ by faith. He is our representative. Everything that's true of him is now true of us. You might think of this uh, like in politics or in uh, any kind of national sense that our ruler our, our, uh, represents the people. So whatever he does, if he goes to war, he does this. 
that since the whole nation is wrapped up in him, he's carrying the whole nation. And everything that he does, in a sense, happens to us as well, metaphorically in him. But I actually think there's something more to say as well about this idea of redemption in Christ, that being in him. Uh, that there's a sense in which we can't actually say redemption really is somewhere. It's located somewhere. It is in a particular place. We might say it's not nowhere. So what do I mean by that? Sometimes we can think of salvation uh, a little too sort of spiritually in a sense of nebulous, as if it never touches real life. It touches this time and space that we live. Well, salvation really did take place in time and space. You could point to a location. And in particular, the place where salvation is now is in the body of Jesus, the resurrection body of Christ. That this physical and spiritual world was cursed because of sin. That was a real curse and it's a real effect on this world. And the place where that curse was very first overturned, in which it's been renewed entirely, as we even looked at in this passage in the Old Testament, is in the body of Jesus. I often encourage my students at seminary to think, it's like occasionally, think very literally about this for a second, actually. That the whole world is cursed. It's under the effects of the fall. But there's actually a tiny little piece of creation that's been renewed. That no longer has the effect of the curse resolved. When Christ was here, he had a body that was still subject to the effect of the curse. That's why he died. That's why he was in pain. But Christ has been renewed, set free from the effects of the fall. That's where the place of salvation is. It's in his resurrection. So what does that mean for us then? Again, I'm not literally in Christ's physical resurrection body. He really does have a physical resurrection body. He really is at the right hand of God on high. But if that's God's salvation place, how do I experience it here? How do I get that? In me, you might say. I don't want to take away from Larry's message next week, which we'll talk about some of this, but I think the answer to that question is the gift of the Spirit. The Spirit's the one who connects us to Christ, so that where He is, there we are as well. See, we're in Christ right now by faith. His resurrection life is given to us by faith. We can't see it. It's invisible to us. It's by faith. He's representing us. It's spiritual now, but one day it will be fully realized for us. We'll have a resurrection body just as he does. See, right now it says that we are counted as in him. We're reckoned as in him. It's been imputed to us that we are in him, that we have his righteousness on our behalf by faith because we're waiting for it. We're hoping for it. That we are now in the beloved son, the died and resurrected one. And we're counted as being in the Son, Paul goes on to say, because of the great cost that he went through in himself to purchase this redemption. He says, through his blood. Blood here speaking, in a sense, about the whole of the fact that Jesus died. He shed his blood for us. He, his death pays the penalty for our sin. But this also harkens back to the Old Testament. The whole idea of redemption again, going all the way back to the Exodus. God has said, life is in the blood, and I give you this blood, he says, to make atonement. Well, why is that the case? Well, again, going back in the Old Testament, there's this idea that when we sin, it pollutes. Sin is a pollution. And the phrase the Old Testament uses for us 
is this phrase blood guilt. It's like our guilt kind of like adheres in our blood. It shows forth our guiltiness. And over and over there's actually a, a picture for us in the Old Testament that blood cries out to God. You might remember Cain and Abel. He says, your blood of your brother cried out to me. And again, this happens in the Old Testament. Your blood guilt cried out to me for vengeance, for justice. I can't just leave this sin to go. But again, as a shadow of the things to come, the Lord said, I will give a blood, animal blood, as atonement for your life. It's blood of cleansing. The writer of Hebrews is kind of summarizing the whole Old Testament when he says, under the law, everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. See, it's with the precious blood of Christ. That's a great phrase, isn't it? Precious is the sense of pure and offered up. Christ's precious blood, a lamb without blemish or defect that were redeemed. See, because Jesus' life produced no blood guilt. His blood could actually atone. Ours couldn't because it's guilty. It has blood guilt in it. But Christ offered his blood, his life to atone for us. And then the next result, Paul piles up these phrases. He says, that's what it meant. Forgiveness of trespasses through his blood. This is what we're given. The Bible's word for forgiveness, you might know this, but literally means to send away, uh, to release. Uh, a friend of mine has said to send packing, to get out of here. It's forgiveness. It's a picture of not just canceling a debt, but sort of releasing from that, releasing from its bondage, its binding to us. Our deliverance in Christ is our sin, is the sending away of our sins, our being released from them, especially their debt over us, their kind of hold on us. What's forgiven and canceled then is our trespassing. Again, not a phrase that we often use much today in maybe just in religious kind of terms, but it's our crossing of God's boundaries. See, God made a good world. He made boundaries. He said, enjoy it right in this area, but don't go across these bounds. It didn't make you to be that kind of person, make the world to be that way. Well, we didn't heed that, went into the territory that God said not to go. We trespassed, but it's in Christ. He says this trespassing is forgiven. It's sent packing. It's put aside. If you've noticed so far, none of these benefits have depended whatsoever on anything that we have done. So it shouldn't be a surprise then that Paul says, well, the manner of this redemption then has nothing to do with you, but with God, with his gift. It's according to the riches of God's grace. So we've seen the location, the means, the result of this redemption. Now we see the sense of this manner of this redemption. It's according to God's grace. Well, what's grace? God's favor, his unmerited favor, something you can do to merit it. Simply God's favor, his gift to us. We don't merit gifts. Gifts, the whole idea of a gift is not something that you deserve or worked for. God has given this as a gift. And the good news of this too is he's rich in this favor. He didn't exhaust it entirely. It's like you can't exhaust God's graciousness, his favor. He's got a wealth of gifts to give. You can't out uh, get God give, God's gifts. He continues to give them. In fact, this abundance theme is what Paul says, that he lavished this grace on us. This lavish is a picture of overflowing, poured out, uh, abounding in excess. Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, Puritan preacher and thinker of our, our country early on, 
often spoke about God as a favorite image, as God as a fountain, an overflowing fountain that never runs dry. And what's the idea of a fountain? It just keeps coming out over and over. You can't, it doesn't run dry. It just keeps giving in grace and in blessing that God has lavished this gift of his son in grace on us. If you look at verse 8, you'll see that the showering of God's grace was done, Paul says, in wisdom and in insight. This is great, but it's kind of a surprising clarification because on the one hand, we don't often think of somebody who's extravagant, somebody who's kind of always giving stuff away. We can't think, he's not very wise about his money. There's wise people about their money who keep it. And then there's extravagant people who just kind of spend it carelessly. Well, interestingly, Paul says, God is extravagant in his grace and he's wise in his grace. It fits together. That God is, his extravagant giving isn't contrary to his wisdom. It's done in wisdom. It's not haphazard or random. And by the way, that's good news too. That God's grace isn't just sort of random about it. It's actually integral to his character. He thinks about how extravagant he wants to be. It's not random. This is how who God is, his character, uh, his very person. But God's wisdom, his gift of grace, Paul goes on to say, is shown especially in what comes next. See, all of God's salvation to us isn't something that just affects our hearts without involving our minds. I mean, you, you could kind of imagine, you could sort of suppose a hypothetical and say, God could actually save our, our hearts and kind of leave us clueless about it. We would never know that we were saved. We would never know what this meant or how to operate in this life. God changed our heart, and that's great, but we don't really know anything more about it. But God saves, and in saving, he also reveals himself. He helps us know now the world that we live in, the world that he made and that he is renewing. And so what did God make known to us? in all of this grace that he lavished on us. Paul says, the mystery of his will. The Bible speaks about a mystery as something that if you looked and looked and looked as hard as you possibly could, you could never figure out on your own. But as soon as God reveals it, you're like, that's what it is. That's what it is. Hidden in plain sight, as one Bible scholar I love has put it that way. The mystery of God's will. And it's his purpose here. God's purpose, his will, his intention for all history, for his creation. And there's three things about this purpose that Paul lists here. He says, what is Paul's, what is the purpose that was revealed in this? God's will was to set it forth in Christ, number one. It was for the administration of the fullness of times, number two. And in goal, number three, was to sum up everything in Christ. So let's look at these briefly. God's will, it says, was set forth in Christ. This is such a great phrase. It means that everything that God intended to do or make known, he says, it's in Jesus. You don't have to go anywhere else. It's found in the Son. It's expressed fully in the incarnate man, Jesus Christ. God chose to reveal the mystery of life, you might say. Not in deep math formulas or things like that, but in the Son. By looking to my son, looking at his life and his death. It's to make Jesus of central importance, really the very center, not only of our salvation. We know that's the case. We know that Jesus is the center of our salvation. Did you ever think about it? Jesus is just the center of life, of history. 
of creation. I love Paul in Colossians, another letter actually very similar to Ephesians. He says it this way, In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So wait, how many treasures, Paul? Like some of them, right? I mean, there's a few of them that were else. No, all of them. They're all in Jesus. A little bit? No, all of them. It all hangs on the knowledge in Christ. He says the word set forth here is a kind of public display. It's out there. You want to know the mystery of life, the mystery of God's will, his plan for creation. He says, well, look at Jesus. There it is. Death and resurrection, the putting to death of sin, the releasing of sin, the renewal of creation in himself. God put forward Jesus to move history forward. See, history is often in a cycle, isn't it? It sort of never goes forward. God put forward Jesus that it might move forward. Now leads us then to the second thing about revealing God's purpose in Christ. He says it's for the administration of the fullness of times. This actually sounds really complicated, but I think what it's getting at is this. God revealing Christ is the way that God is ruling the world now. So he put forward Christ to know his will, to know what's going on, to have the knowledge of everything in Christ. And he says the fullness of time is now. That's the fullness of time. At least it's starting now. In another place, Paul says, you might remember this, it's often read at Christmas time, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now is the fullness of all of those ages past that God had inaugurated. Times of this or that, this covenant of leading his people in this way. You can think again of uh, the writer of Hebrews saying, in many different ways God revealed things and did these things in the past, but now Jesus. That's it. <laughs> That's the last one. Uh, all of God's promises are yes and amen. Now is the final time, which is, by the way, why we don't need to wait for another covenant, another testament. Well, what if God's going to do something totally new that he didn't tell us about at all? No, nope, he said it. It's in Christ. This is the fullness of the times. God is governing this time, this full time, this time of fulfillment by his son, by the God-man, Christ Jesus. And that's why number three then God says, Paul says that God's ultimate goal is to sum up everything in Christ, in heaven and on earth. This word sum up is so great because it has a sense of bring to a head, bring to a climax, head up all things. We might remember later on in Ephesians, Paul's going to talk about Christ being the head of the body. And right here he says, well, Christ is the head over all things. He's going to head up Everything. He's going to bring everything together. So not only is it the case that Christ rules now, but he's going to bring everything by his rule together, unite it, renew it. His sin had brought that disruption of everything, kind of making everything out of joint, separating even heaven and earth. But Jesus is going to bring it all back together. First Corinthians 15 uh, Paul says, Christ must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And when everything is subjected to him, God will be all in all. That's all. It's all united. It's all there. God's summing up. He's doing this work. He's putting enemies under his feet. By the way, that means us. Under his feet, uniting things and people in this world. What's in interesting as we think about this section is that it started with the forgiveness of our sins. Well, that's great news. I mean, my sins are forgiven. But we actually end the section with the whole world has changed. Like a little bit, 
like, I would really love for my guilt to go away and to have a great clean conscience. Well, great, but the end of that is the whole world renewed, hanged together in Christ, united in Christ. See, God not only saves in Jesus, he opens up all of history to be in Jesus as well, to point to him that Jesus is going to, we're going to look back and say, the linchpin of it all, the changing of everything. The second statement we have here is going to go much more quickly, so don't worry as we look at the time. Uh, not only do we have redemption in Christ, but Paul says we also have a share in Christ. Uh, I've intentionally translated this phrase pretty ambiguously. Some of your translations might say, uh, given an inheritance, made heirs. It's kind of a difficult word to know exactly what it means. It certainly can mean an inheritance, something you're given of the Father, and that fits very well. And Paul's going to talk about inheritance very clearly in the next passage, that we're made heirs to reign with Christ. And that's a good explanation, but the word really just means a portion. You're given a share. So we might ask, well, a share in what? And the answer is all of it. Everything I just said, from forgiveness of sins to the renewal of the whole world, summing up everything in the heart, you're given a share in this. It's the flow of this passage. We're redeemed. We're forgiven of our sins. And then we can know God's will in the history of this world. We can begin to take part in it, to live in Christ. So that our goal of living is God's goal in all of this, summing up things in him that we might be for the praise of his glory. That's one of the final phrases here, that we might be for the praise of his glory, which is great because it doesn't just say that we're to praise God, which is part of it. Part of all of this redemption is so that we might praise God. But Paul actually kind of says it a little bit different, kind of funny. He says, so that you might be for the praise of your whole life. Not just your words. Everything that you are might be for God's praise. I mean, we might become God's praise in our whole selves, pointing to him. We have the cosmic goal of God's plan. We have the goal for us individually, all of it to the praise of God's glory. Well, an ending for this kind of message and application for this message is actually um, kind of difficult because, again, there's nothing for us to do. So the first thing is simply to be in awe of this. This is all that God has done for you, that we might praise him, but we might live according to this and see what he has given for us. But just last kind of uh, application for us as we think about this passage and going on. The flip side of having a redemption in Christ, and by the way, that's present tense. We have a redemption. It's not something that we had. Oh, we, we had a redemption uh, it's kind of in our back pocket and you can kind of put it away. No, it's something we have and therefore that we're to live according to. And if we have redemption in Christ, that's where it's located. What does that mean? Is that it's not located anywhere else. And you can't leave Christ and expect to find redemption somewhere else. If it's in Jesus, that's where we must go. That's where we must remain too. We must abide in Christ. We can't turn aside we have to mature in him, grow up from him, and know what he has for us in the world. See, our culture has a narrative, too, about where this world is heading, uh, that things might get better, perhaps, if we do this or that. It has a redemption, has a liberation story. It has, a, by the way, a way to atone for trespasses. It's a very difficult way, if you think about what our culture says, to actually atone for what you have done. It has mysteries, our culture says, that are going to unlock how you really know how to live in this world. But it's when we know what we already have in Christ, presently, what we have in him, that we can say, no, no, I don't really need that. We can resist 
that temptation and not be swept away with our culture. This is what you have in Christ right now, in him. So listen again to Paul's prayer of praise. To God, about Christ, but concerning you. What is in Christ for us? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that in Christ is our redemption for us and for all the world. That you have made us to have a share in it, that we praise you, O God, for what you have done, what you have given to us. So we ask you now, by your Spirit, help us to continue to receive these gifts and to hold on to them with thankful hearts, to renew our minds so that we might know your will, cause us to share in your plan, to sum up all things in your Son, and give us grace always to abide in him. But we ask it in his name and through your Spirit, one God, now and forevermore. Amen.